0: Uh, I got a message today um, that today is where's is Ellie Gelb? he here? here. Your father's fifty fifth birthday. Am I getting that right? Woo! All right. So he 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 saw on the website, or they saw. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday. up listening to this, he has to come to yeshiva to, to, to have a parashashir, now that you're saying, kids sing happy birthday in absentia. Anyway, sh- Bruce, anyway <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble somehow, I'm not sure how yet, but um, anyway, I got a message from Michal that he sponsored it, in, or maybe your mother sponsored her. there's a Bubby a Bubby Elaine? Your puppy's birthday also, so it's an honor. your puppy's birthday. birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Yeah. Okay, birthday. Birthday. Oh, okie-dokie. Yeah. right, Bumpy Elaine. Right. Give it up for Bumpy Elaine! <laughs> not, okay. not enough ruach here, I think. You know. Got to wake you guys up a little bit. Anyway, he, they they noticed that there's a site on the website that you could sponsor a day of learning, so they did that, and I missed it. I, I, I saw the message after Rambam Shira. I figure I owe them. So even though it's technically the day's. You know, this is the Eker Zach of Thursday, right? So, so when you eat your children tonight, know that the Gelb family sponsored the children. <laughs> to have a <her> drink of <laughs> and Eloi. Okay. So. Um, this is a difficult topic. And it's a topic that we all face, but we don't face it regularly. So because you don't face this regularly, when it comes up, it kind of takes you by surprise. And we've actually spoken about this before, but this is such an obvious issue in this week's Parsha, and and such a powerful idea, that I wanted to share it with you. Um, So, we're living in um, a very unique period of time, right? And and every once in a while it just hits you, you, the absurdity of it all. the the surreal nature of what we're doing. I mean, when I was younger, I remember seeing movies. Dustin Hoffman was in this blockbuster movie about the Ebola outbreak, and you see him like walking through the streets with this crazy spaceman suit, and it's like something out of Hollywood. And then I go to get a vaccine, Baruch Hashem, and they're all wearing, like, this is the reality today. My daughter was in a Corona ward for a month, you know, one of her rotations, and every time she had to go in to see a patient, they had to strip into one of these, you know, spaceship suits. Crazy. And here I'm giving you shear, I have to use a microphone in the basement, because we're, we're, I'm talking to through, through two levels of plastic. And this has become the new normal. You know? We used to say, what time is it, or how are you doing? Today we say, are you wearing your mask? We're all masked. It's crazy. And what's interesting to me is, I recently had a conversation with a fellow who asked me, you know, he was asking me what it's like over here. And at one point he said, he said, how do you deal with the fear? And I said, what fear are you speaking about? And he said, what do you mean? He said, I wake up every day afraid. Like, am I gonna get it? Are my parents gonna get it? Did I walk by somebody who has it? Did somebody who has it leave it for me? You know, we're not talking about stucca, right? It's a a serious virus. In Israel, you know, there are 40 people a day now who are nifter. That's unbelievable. 40 people. 40 people who were here yesterday are not here today, physically. Every day. That's, That's crazy. And it's scary. And yet, I think it would be reasonable to say... Some people here were nervous when they got here. Some people were scared. I wonder if there were people who didn't come to Israel because they were nervous. I look, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe now we're in the opposite space. Like, maybe people here should be nervous. Maybe I want to get you more nervous because, you know, you just... We take it for granted. We forget to... I walked into the basement. It's the first time this happened this year. I was carrying, you know, the guitar and the safari. And all of a sudden I realized I, I hadn't put my mask over my nose. So i like, whoa! You know, we're going to Gehenim, Right? But maybe I'm not afraid enough. People are scared. I mean I heard that the big event in the dorms last night after Nightsader was to watch to watch the Madhouse in Congress yesterday. That's unbelievable. The world is upside down. And there's a there's a photo that I saw. I guessing I didn't spend as much time on it as you did. They're all nuts, what's the point, right? But there's a there's a there's a, a photo of a security guard in the Congress, in Congress, and he's got—that's interesting—and he's got a gun pointed at a door because there's some rioters outside the door, and there's a woman in the corner. I don't know if she's an aide or a congresswoman. She looks to be older, and she has this look of fear on her face. She's scared. And I learned over the years that fear is more difficult when it's unexpected, like when something comes out of the blue and you don't expect it. And I remember, I told you half this story, but I never finished it because I knew eventually we'd get a chance to finish it. Um, the story of Efiatam, right? If you remember, Efiatam was, uh, was, was in the uh, Yom Kippur War. And I'm pretty sure I told you this story. No? Did I tell you this story? Maybe I didn't. Maybe you're somebody else. That's okay. It's a good story. You do Hazar in the story. Efiatam was, um, he eventually became an aloof uh, lieutenant general. So it's about it's, this, it's pretty much one of the higher positions you can reach in the Israeli army there aren't that many of them at any given time he was the Machat of Givati he was the brigade commander of an elite infantry unit he eventually became a Haver Knesset I mean he has what to talk about he recently went through a whole challenge because um, he was he uh, was um, put up for the position uh, by Netanyahu to be the, the director or the chairman, I forget the exact name of the position of Yad Vashem. People took issue with one of his statements, or a number of his statements many years ago regarding Arabs. I'm not sure sure they weren't taken out of context, but um, I'm not close with him, but I had the privilege of meeting him a couple times. And uh, the second time I actually got the guts at the behest of a friend of mine um, to ask him if he'd be willing to speak to Oraita. This friend who was friendly with him said, you know, you should ask him to speak. So I took the risk and I, I did. I, 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 you know, reached out to him, he gave me his WhatsApp and uh, and I asked him if he would come and speak to Oraita. He said, absolutely, I'd be happy to speak to Orayta. You know, he asked me what it was, whenever. Sometimes, now he lives in the Golan. He lives in a yeshuv called Nov up in the, in the northern Golan. And um, so I figured, okay, next time we go up to the Golan, right? This was, I don't know, two years ago, last year, two years ago next time we go up to the Golan, so I'll call him up and see if he's there, if he can come speak. So, we were going up to the Golan Heights, it's a place I still intend to take you to this year, Mizrat Hashem, when this starts to calm down and the weather gets better, and I called him up. And I said, you know, I had told you that we were going to be up in the Golan. He said, yep, I remember I promised I'd come speak. Don't worry, I'll be there. I said, wow, always awesome. Are you sure? You know, you can back out. No, no, no. Milaza mila. Word is word. So, so we get up to the Golan, we had a whole day, we went to Gamla, a whole incredible story based on Josephus, Romans, and then in the afternoon we went to Emeka Baha, the Valley of Tears, the whole story of the Yom Kippur War, unbelievably powerful place, and we stood on the border and watched Kunetra, we went into the bunkers, like it's a whole day, and we finally finished this day, we had pizza dinner, whatever, and we went back, uh, this particular trip we were staying overnight up in the Golan. And it's like, I don't know, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, finished dinner with Dev Mariv, <clears throat> and the F.E.A. time shows up. And he comes over to me, and before we start to speak, and everybody's like gathered in this room, and, um, and he says, look, you know, I feel bad for my driver. Um, I'm going to be staying tonight in Nov, but he has to get back to Yerushalayim. You know, he just drove me up from Yerushalayim. I don't want to make him wait while I do the speech. Would you be agree? would you, do you think you'd be able to drive me back to Nov? It's like a 20-minute drive I said would I be I'd, I'd be honored to you know when you hear his story you'll know why like to drive such a person to have 20 minutes with him in the car or hear another story unbelievable sure I'd be happy to I said wait a second what do you mean you just drove up from Yerushalayim I thought you live in Nov he said yeah but I work in Yerushalayim I'm there all week I said you came up from Yerushalayim he said yeah I said, well, how long will you be in the Golan? Maybe you'd prefer to speak to them tomorrow. I feel bad. You're so exhausted. He goes, no, I have to go back early in the morning to Yerushalayim. I said, wait a second. You drove up from Yerushalayim just to speak to the right of boys. You're going back down? He looks at me and goes, Mila's a A word is a word. I told you I'd be here. I'd be, I blew my mind. It's a true story. So I felt like this little, but okay. So he tells the following story. In the Yom Kippur War, he was a captain in Seirat Matkal. Seirat Matkal is the elite recon unit in the Israeli army. Uh, you have to sign up for five years if you get in. It's very difficult to get in. And he was a captain in, in the Matkal. The following story, uh, he, he was at the time, he considered himself not religious. He grew up in a kibbutz that called itself not religious. Um, he eventually became very much a religious person, the with a kippah on his head and the whole nine yards. And he attributes that to three different stories. This is one of them. Okay? He was also, by the way, just to be clear, he was a commander of one of the units in the raid on Entebbe, if you know that story. This is a serious war hero. Okay? And he tells the following story. He was sent out from the base, from Nafek, which is the central base in the Golan, to do reconnaissance. There were artillery barrages all morning. They knew that the, troops, the Syrian troops were moving, and they, were, they needed to see what was going on. It's not like today where you have satellites watching every minute. So he had a, a forward you know, position group, five men, you know, or three men, I forget, in a jeep, and uh, they were out in the Golan Heights, and he begins to see movement. It's two o'clock in the afternoon on Yom Kippur, and he sees all this dust being raised up, and he looks through his binoculars, and he can't believe his eyes. The whole plane is, is alive. He doesn't even need his binoculars. There are over 400 tanks headed in his direction. Now, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, when the Yom Kippur War broke out on October 6, 1973, it actually really broke out in the morning with unbelievable artillery barrages all along the lines. And some people sort of smelled what was coming, but the intelligence wasn't clear. We were caught with our pants down. And so they didn't expect this. 2,000 tanks crossed the line in the Golan Heights. They were exactly 125 Israeli tanks to defend the Golan. And you have to understand if you know your map, and we'll see this when we go up there, Rezrat Hashem, there was nothing else between the entire Syrian army and the belly of Israel. I mean, they were two hours on tank treads from Tveria, four hours from Tel Aviv, nothing between them. In this particular area, there are three major areas where the Syrians could come into the Golan and get into Israel, this was one of them. And he's out in this field, In Israeli territory since the Six Day War for six years and he sees 400 450 tanks coming towards him through this valley. What do you do? There were no other tanks around in his particular area. There's just the five of them. Now they had one anti-tank weapon, right? One anti-tank missile, okay? I believe it was a tow anti-tank weapon but doesn't really matter. And now he has a dilemma. They're rolling in his direction. By the way, A tank, just so you understand, is so loud that if a tank was rolling from like 100, 200 yards away, you would not be able to hear me talking, even with this microphone. That's how loud a tank is. Between the engine and the tank treads, the sound of 450 tanks rolling across the plane, like a kilometer away, is a deafening sound that I am blessed not to even be able to imagine. The most tanks I've ever heard at one time is about 60 or 70, I can't imagine 450. The earth shakes. And they're all coming in his direction, and he has one anti tank weapon. So he's looking at us, he says, What do you do? He says, On the one hand, you gotta be crazy. If you fire this tank weapon, even if you take out the tank, I mean, it's one tank out of 450 tanks, it's not gonna make a difference. All you're gonna be doing is showing them where you are. Right? So it's the stupidest thing you can imagine. You should get in your jeep and hightail it and try to get reinforcements. On the other hand, there's nobody else there. And you're there with an anti-tank missile. You can take out a tank. How could you not do something? They're attacking your country. The whole of Israel is defenseless. So they debate this, and he talks to his men, and they decide, we have to do this. Now they're positioned under, they found a camouflaged area under like a little bit of a cement bridge. You know how like a highway runs along, and sometimes there's little ravines. They build like this kind of cement over the area. So it's one of those cement kind of overpasses. And underneath there's a little like gully, and they're hiding in this gully. And the tanks head up onto this road. And he waits and spots a tank that's in the front with a lot of antennae, and that's a sure sign this is a commander's tank. So he figures if he does take out a tank, take out a commander's tank. Maybe it'll slow them down a little bit. So he waits until the tank passes overhead, jumps out with this anti-tank weapon, aims it, you can't miss, I it mean, it's a 52-ton tank. And he fires his anti-tank weapon, and the tank explodes and grinds to a halt, and stops. And all the tanks that are following it, stop. And all the tanks that are following them, stop. And over the next minute or two, 450 tanks grind to a halt. It goes deathly quiet. The, 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 the contrast of this thunder And now the total silence of this valley is something he says he remembers to this day. And they stop. Now they're sure they're about to die, because everybody's going to look for them, and they're going to start pounding them. Nobody fires. They just stop. So they decide, maybe they're in shock, maybe something's going on, they can sneak away. So they manage to get away, and they find a vantage point, and they decide to continue watching and see if they can report. And all of these tanks just stop for hours. He can't understand what happened. Now, years later, the war is over, and Tebby is over, and he's in an advanced course called Pum Pikudu Mate, which is a an elite course for people learning to become battalion commanders and higher, right, when you sort of get to the rank of colonel or like, or the like, and it's a very elite course, and it's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can't talk about, which I never did, so I don't even know. But he gets access to some of the military files in the Yom Kippur War, because they obviously have a, a serious library there for you know military strategy. And he manages to finally get a look at, at the Tatsaot, the, 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 the um, aerial recon photos and everything from this particular battle. And he finally finds out exactly what happened. The tank that he happened to hit was the tank of the division commander of this entire division, right? Of all 450 tanks. Now, the Syrians follow a Russian doctrine, and the Syrians are a dictatorship. They do things a little differently than we do. In an Israeli army unit, right, there's what's called a succession of command. You don't go out on a mission without knowing who will take over if something happens to you. So if you're the company commander, you know, and something happens to you, God forbid, so your deputy commander takes over. And if something happens to him, there are three platoon commanders. Like, those are either one or two bars. And everybody knows which one takes over. And then if that one goes, which one takes over. And then the same thing with sergeants. You just know. You plan this out. You maneuver based on that. When you do maneuvers, you know, sometimes the guy overseeing the maneuver will tap you on the shoulder and say you're wounded, and your deputy has to come over, or you have to take over for the battalion command, all this kind of stuff. But in Syria, it's not like that. You don't want to make it clear who's going to take over for you if you die. Because it's a a dictatorship. And you're afraid that if he knows that he gets your position if you die, he might accidentally make sure that a bullet finds his way into your back. So they don't know who takes over. And if the commander dies, and you start to give orders, they might later decide that you had something to do with it. Or they might decide that you're trying to foment a rebellion or a coup, and you'll end up on the end of a noose. So nobody knows what to do. So the entire battle stops. For the better part of six hours, these tanks halt. And later, when they will analyze that whole day and the day after, they will realize that those six hours were critical hours beginning to allow the first of the reserve soldiers to get up there to begin to hold the line and eventually turn the tide. All because F.E.A. Etam just picked a tank with antennae and happened to shoot the one tank that could stop the entire battle. And he looks at us and he says to us, you know, sometimes people will say to me, you grew up on a religious kibbutz. Like, what, what made you decide to become a religion? He says, I'll tell you a story like that, I don't think you, need, you have the question anymore. And so all the guys are, like, listening to this. And it's, like, unbelievable to hear him tell the story. I'm not doing it justice, right? And then he looks at all of us, and he says, you know, it's late at night. It's, like, 9.30 at night. I know you've been, like, uh, you know, I mean, we woke up at 5, 6 in the morning to, to, to get up to the Golan whatever. She said, if you've had enough, it's okay. Everybody says, no, 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 no. You know, he's, he's a powerful speaker. She's like, really? You sure? Like, I feel bad. You're 18 years old, whatever. And they're like, no, no, no. He says, okay, you know what? He says, if we're going to go a little further, that's fine, but I want to make sure you got to wake up. He says, you know what? He says, everybody's going to drop. We're going to do 25 push-ups. Now, this fellow was 64 years old at the time, and he had just finished telling us that he recently had a 24th grandchild. If a 64-year-old with 24 grandchildren gets down and starts doing push-ups, and you're 18 years old, you do push-ups, right? It's just not cool. So all the guys get down and start doing push-ups, right? Now I'm sitting there and I'm watching this 64-year-old do push-ups and all the guys do push-ups. Okay, so, you guys, so we all get down doing push-ups. I feel a little silly. We're all doing push-ups. That's fine. And it wakes everybody up. by Aaron was sitting. He's like, I'm not doing push-ups. I'm a mister. That's okay, right? And then he gets up and he turns it into a Q&A. And he talks about what makes a leader and he gives us a few things. So afterwards, we're in the car. And um, I didn't want to ask him a question and take time away from the guys. But now I have like 20 minutes I'm driving him back to know with a student and his brother a soldier were dropping off somewhere. And I said to him, okay, I got to ask you a question because this is my issue. And I've been struggling with this for 20 years and I came to an answer, but he said, uh, I said, how did you overcome your fear? You cannot tell me that you weren't terrified seeing 450 tanks come over you. And a tank rolls up over the bridge, and you jump out, and you just fire an anti-tank weapon, that must have been, t- how did you overcome your fear? And I shared with him, if you remember, the beginning of the year, we talked about this, I was in an ambush, I almost froze, I became a. Do you remember this discussion? I was afraid of being afraid, and I asked different people advice. I remember I asked them, M.Pey, how did you overcome, because I was terrified after that. What if next time I really freeze? You could get a lot of people killed. I was more afraid of being afraid than I was actually afraid, but that's, that's fear. Because you don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, I had a a, a company commander who told me, get really angry. Remember this? Get really angry. Fill yourself up in anger. That's a terrible thing to do, because then you get all angry. So I came to my own answer. I wanted to know what his was. Now remember, he defined himself as not religious. So he couldn't have had my answer. My answer I finally got from Rav Medan. Rav Medan, when I was in yeshiva... Uh, I was back for Shabbat a few months later, and he pointed it out to me in the Rambam. And he said, the Rambam says, in Hilchos Melachim, and if anybody wants to see La you can come over me, I'll show it to you. He says, what does a soldier think of when he's in a battle, when he's fighting Mohammed Mitzvah? And he basically says, Yish'an al-Mikvei Israel, he should lean on the wellspring of Israel. Put yourself in bigger hands. Like, do the best you can do, and once you're done doing everything you can do, put yourself in bigger hands. So for me, it's, it's, it's if you believe Hashem runs the world, and if you believe that you've done everything you can do, you're running up the hill, you've done everything you can do, put yourself in bigger hands. Hashem decides anyway whether you get off that hill or not. Okay. But that wasn't his answer. How could that be his answer? He didn't even know God existed. Right? So I asked him, how did you overcome that fear? Okay? Now, before we answer that question, I've got to share something with you, little parsha. I know that's a mean thing to do, but listen to this. This is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. Sefer Shmot. We're beginning a whole new stage of the Jewish people, right? It's interesting that the whole story of the beginning of the servitude in Egypt, right? We're about to discover the first instance of the rise of anti-Semitism, right? There'll be a new king. There's a big debate. Was it really a new king? Did he just act like a new king, Right? Is this president a new president? Is he just going to act like a new president? Is he a president we know? Something that goes through your mind. You know, the week of Parshat Shemot is the week where a new president in America is elected. it has got to give us pause. Hashem should bless us and him with wisdom. If you live in America, you make a bracha to this effect on Shabbos morning to, to do the right thing and not do the wrong thing, whatever that means. And it's a little scary, Right. And by the way, if you look carefully at the story of, of, of the beginning of the servitude of the Jewish people, it's the classic recipe for the rise of anti-Semitism. You know, I don't know about you. I grew up thinking it could never happen here. Like, America was different. It's a melting pot. You know, we're, we're civilized. We're part of a, a Western enlightened society, a democracy. It can't happen. And then you start to look over the last year at things that are going on. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a prophet of doom and I don't believe that God forbid there are going to be pogroms next week. But anybody who looks at the current reality and doesn't imagine it could happen is taking a little bit of a risk in my imagination. What you do about that to prevent it—that's a legitimate question. But okay. And then Hashem comes to Moshe Rabbeinu and He says, "Okay, you got to go down. The Jewish people are enslaved. Right? Two hundred and ten years in Egypt, eighty years of hard labor. If you if you if you accept the Medrash, they're they're throwing babies and using them for." building pyramids, shot in the Pasuk, firstborn baby boys, maybe all the baby boys, are thrown into the Nile River. We cannot even imagine the agony that that must have caused. Holocaust survivors can understand this. I don't know what they do when they get to this Parsha. And then Moshe Rabbeinu is not around, right? He's up in Midian. Now it's interesting. Moshe Rabbeinu grows up in the palace. We all know the story. And one day he goes out to see, right? Lirot at it's amazing. He grew up in the equivalent of Eichmann's palace, right, Paro's palace. And he recognized the Jews were his brethren, probably from his nurse mother Yochevet, his mother, but whatever. And, and he goes out to see how they're doing. Where well, where's he learn to do that? The entire beginning of Moshe's life is all about women. He's born, right? He's just a man. At this point, doesn't matter. And he takes a woman. He marries her. And she gets pregnant. ben. She gives birth to a boy. She sees that he's good. She sees. And then, for whatever the reason, he's hidden for three months, it's something, he starts to make noise, people start to recognize. So she puts him on the Nile River, we all know the story. So Bat Haro is going down the Nile River, for Tereh, right? She sees that there's a baby crying, a Nile right? And then Miriam watches over the baby. The beginning of Moshe's life is all about women, and these women are seeing. They teach him how to see. You can learn to see another human being, to really see them, to see their pain, to be with them from the women. Women know how to see. They're better at that than we are. So Moshe learns to see. He goes out and he sees. He sees an Egyptian hitting a Jew. And he, he, he steps in. And he sees two Jews fighting. He's learned to see. And this gets him into a mess and he ends up having to leave. So he leaves. Meets a girl, gets married, has a father-in-law... How many years is he in Midian before we revisit Moshe Rabbeinu's life? 39 years. He is now 79 years old. Now, I don't know about you. 22 years from now, when I'm 79, I'm not going to be looking to start a new program. You know, I, I hope they'll still want to listen to me here. We'll see. The voice will sound a little different. You know, you'll have to help me with my guitar. But okay. Moshe Rabbeinu 79 years old. He's done. It's retirement time. Kosh Baruch has a different idea. So now Hashem is going to introduce Hashem's self to Moshe. Okay? Now, Hashem has the eternity to plan for this moment. How does Hashem introduce himself, herself, itself, whatever, Hashem's self to Moshe? With a burning bush. Do you ever think about that? That's the big moment. This is a pretty big moment. Hashem is introducing Hashem's self to Moshe. And this is the moment that will lead to the Exodus from Egypt, the, the Sinai experience bringing Torah to the world. You can trace the birth of three major religions, not just Judaism, Christianity, Islam back to this moment. And how do we start this big moment? A burning bush? Really? You couldn't burn the Himalayas, burn the Rocky Mountains. Burn the bush. It's like a really Jewish moment, you know? No, the Imale is expensive. Get a bush, you know? Okay, so they burn a the bush. Now, the thing about a burning bush that's burning in the middle of the sun in the desert, you have to be looking to see the bush burning. I gotta go see this. 39 years later, Moshe is still seeing. Vayar Hashem kisar lirot. when Hashem sees that Moshe goes to see, then Vayar Hashem sees the pain of the Jewish people and the whole beginning the whole beginning of the Exodus. If we if we want to achieve redemption, we have to be willing to see. We have to see each other, we have to see the world around us. Okay. Then starts a week long debate. Moshe's arguing with God. And we get to our moment. Listen to this. This is unbelievable. I'll leave you over Shabbat to study Perek the wider story of Shemot. Perak Dalek, the beginning of the fourth chapter. They're not going to believe me. They're not going to listen to me. Why? Hashem hasn't appeared to you. How do I know Hashem has appeared to you? I don't believe you. There's some 79-year-old shnook who ran away from here. Who knows how long ago? So listen to this, this is unbelievable. So Hashem says to him, biyadecha? what's that in your hand? It's a ridiculous question. You're God. You know what's in his hand. You made his hand. You made the mate. Okay. Vayome mate. He says, a mateh, a staff. Now this would seem to be just an innocuous moment, but we know this is big. Because this is the introduction of one of the major tools of redemption, the mate. The same mate that Moshe eventually will throw down before Paro. The same mate that Aaron will use to hit the Nile to start the plagues and blood. The same mate that Moshe will s- strike the sea and split the sea, Krias Yamsuf. And the same mate that hits rocks and turns into water. There's a big mate. The midrash goes bananas about this mate. Oh, Adam Rishon had the mate and he passed it on to everybody has the mate, right? You ever think about that? Why do we need a mate? Why do you need a mate? What's a mate for? You want to do a miracle? You know? Just... When I was a kid, there was a show, I Dream of Genie. I don't know if you ever heard of this. There was some genie who came out of a bottle, and she blinked and miracles happened. But Moshe can't blink. I don't know. He's got to hit the... That... What's a mate for? Okay. Vayomer <speaking in> hashlichei <Hebrew> Throw it on the ground. Anybody <speaking in Hebrew> remember? where does it become? Anachash. <speaking in Hebrew> Vayanas Moshe Mipanav, and Moshe runs from the snake. Now, let's take a moment here. You're in the middle of a dialogue with God. Now, i got to believe that if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, even 79-year-old Moshe, you're not yet, you know, ready to get up on Sinai. but you've got to be pretty high up there to have a direct communication with Hashem. So, if you're talking to Hashem, and Hashem is talking to you, then you know you're talking to Hashem, right? You know you're talking to Hashem. You run away from a snake when you're talking to a Kodesh Baruch And you know that the snake was just a staff, so the whole thing is some kind of trick miracle. So I got to assume that this snake must be so terrifying that it will cause you to run even in the midst of a conversation with a Kodesh Baruch By the way, this should disprove my theory, right? If you know Hashem runs the world, then you have no fear, right? What is fear? Fear is the unknown. Think of any time you were afraid, you're afraid because of the unknown, right? And now a girl wants to ask you out. You want to ask a girl out. You're walking through the Rover Square. She's doing safe Sefer Malachim. Malachim, all the way at the end of Shoftim, right? And you say to her, wow, you learn Rambam. She looks at you, she says, Unbelievable, right? She, she just rattles off the 14 books. He said, Oh, where's Hilchos Malvel Love? And she says, Mishpatim. She says to you, Where's Hilchos Tefillin? And you say, Ava. And you realize this is going somewhere. And you want to ask her out. You know, you want to go, you're a Chagiga, but you're afraid. Because <laughs> what if she's shun a bet And she doesn't take you seriously You don't know right? You want to ask a girl out You don't know But if you knew When you're dating a girl for a while you're not afraid to ask one day She says yes yeah. She says no She has time She doesn't have time Fear is the unknown You're in a battlefield And you don't know If you're going to make it out of there And you're afraid But if you could really know That Hashem runs the world And that whatever meant to be Is meant to be You would have no fear So, if there's one figure that I would imagine isn't afraid, it's Moshe, because Moshe knows! And he's in the middle of knowing! And he runs away. This must be unbelievable fear. How do you go from knowing to unknowing? And then the most incredible thing happens, right? Reach out your hand and grab its tail. Okay? This is like, I have a daughter and in certain things she's fearless we once had a mouse in the house she ran after the mouse got it under her foot and killed it right that's pretty cool for a 12 year old right okay but a spider if she sees a spider in the other corner of the room right i mean it's like the car alarm went off in downtown Miami. it's unbelievable right she's afraid of spiders. i don't know why it's unnatural right so she she's been studying surgery of late doing things that would terrify me, but if I ask her to pick up a spider, she'll freak out. Right? I don't know why. I don't, there's some lack of knowledge there. But the last thing I would do is say to her, you know, you've got to conquer your fear. Pick up the spider. Come on, you could do That would be ridiculous. Right? What does it mean? Grab it by the tail. So he grabs the tail and he holds it. And it becomes a mate again in his hand. So, he's running away, I assume, because he's terrified. But then Hashem says, no, pick up the snake. So if you can pick it up, you're not terrified. And when you're not terrified, it becomes a matin. So what's this all about? And how does this help us understand how to deal with fear? So I want to make a suggestion. And uh, I think the question is better than the answer. I'm warning you in advance. Why do make a suggestion? Rav Desler talks about this. Isn't this interesting? Pardon? Of Dessler's Yortzeit? Wow. I did not know that. Tonight? Of Dessler's Yortzeit. Wow. Okay. So it should be the Lunar Shema for Eliyahu Dessler who was a tremendous tam uh, chacham. was the Meshgich of Panovich. And uh, if you've never studied the myth of this would be a powerful night to take a look at the Mecht of Thank you for that. I'm going to go home and do a little of So if Dessler talks about this And he says, isn't it interesting? The mate, the staff, becomes a snake when you throw it to the ground. When you hold it up, it's a mate. Now, what's the difference between a mate and a snake? You're going to like this, okay? If you have a staff and you lean on the staff, it doesn't work if it's bent. You want a staff that's straight, right? The snake, on the other hand, how does the snake move? It slithers. It's anything but snake. In fact, if you snake, I read somewhere that if you see a snake that's perfectly straight on the ground, it's dead. A snake never stays completely straight, for whatever the reason, right? Now, what does the snake represent? The snake is the Yetzirah. The snake is that which causes us to veer from the path, right? When you have a path and you can't see what's coming around the bend, there's a certain excitement to that. But when a path crisscrosses too much and goes back and forth, you get lost. When you're on a straight path, you know where you're going and where you're coming from. And the Rambam says, Hilchodeah, the middle path, derech Yishara, right? If you throw the derech Yishara on the ground, it becomes the Yetzirah, it becomes the snake. When you pick it up and put it in your hand, it becomes a Mateh. Think about that for a minute, right? The ground, the earth, the base instincts, The animal aspect of ourselves, that gets us off track. But if we pick it up and we hold it up, then it becomes straight, then it becomes clear. Moshe Rabbeinu makes one mistake. He looks down. He says, they're not going to believe me. Hashem says to them, you know why they won't believe you? Because you're looking down. If you look down, if you forget what the point is, if you forget where you're going, if Hashem isn't in front of you, then yeah, they won't believe you. And you'll be living in the land of the snake. But if you hold it up to the light, if you realize. Now, think about this. And I'll just finish with this. In order for you, in the midst of your fear, to grab the snake by the tail, you have to recognize, you have to hear Hashem calling you. You have to recognize that the snake's an illusion. You can't grab a snake by the tail, but you can grab a staff by the tail. So, what's the trick? The trick is to look at the snake and realize it's a staff. This world is an illusion. We live in a world of illusion. If Hashem runs the world, then miracles are only natural. And all of nature is a miracle. All the things that bring us down, they're an illusion. Now, we need to live in that illusion. We're not on a level to completely ignore that illusion. You don't step out of a building at 30 stories and say, let's see if Hashem loves me. Right? But recognize that because we're not on that level, that doesn't mean that we can't recognize that there's a certain illusory quality to it. And when I can see that the things that cause me fear, the unknown is really an illusion, and the reality is really to know, then I can turn everything around. Says Effie Tam. right? How do you overcome your fear? He says, you recognize that you're in a moment for a reason. Now, I don't know if he knew that that's exactly the beginning of your journey to Emunah. I don't know, didn't get to ask him that question. He says, you recognize you're in a moment You've been given something. You have a purpose in this world. And if you're put in the middle of that field with an anti-tank weapon, then it's your mission to use that anti-tank weapon. That's why you're there. And that will lead them on a path to faith, to recognize that we're here for a reason, to recognize that there's a bigger picture, to be able to access true knowledge, to know that Hashem runs the world. To know that, that the things that bring us down, the thing that causes us to unknown. You know, you're dating some girl and she breaks your heart. She breaks up with you. She says, no, bavli, nah, I want your Shalmi. And it's heartbreaking because you're deep into bavli. How could you give up Rav Gav Shir? It's bavli. <laughs> but if she breaks up with you, maybe it means that that was the illusion that you're meant to learn from. Hashem knows what he's doing. You know? Now, I don't say this is easy. It's not always easy to figure out what it is that you're meant to know. But to begin that journey, to struggle with that question, that takes you down a different road. You know? To know that everything happens for a reason. You have to struggle with what the reason is. But there is a reason. There is a bigger picture. There is a purpose. Every aspect of who we are, the way we're created, the things we want, the things we don't want, they're all part of who we are. And if we put it up to sort of a bigger picture... It changes the way we look at things, and we overcome the things that bring us down. So this is a much longer discussion. That's a little bit of food for thought. Uh, Thursday night in Parshat Shemot, I want to just... ...wonderful, wonderful I'm going to take this on pause, and uh, Shabbat Shalom.